Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and today we're joined by a very special guest in the form of former Liberal Democrat leader and very much current uh, Westmoreland and Lonsdale MP, Tim Farron. Uh, hi, Tim. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been particularly keen um, to get you on because um, you led uh, recently this fascinating debate about second homes and the issues that causes in your area of the Lake District and also in places like um, mm. the Yorkshire Dales as well. Um, I know it's been an issue that you've been talking about for a while, but sort of the, the debate really clarified a lot of things. And I know you kind of put forward some ideas of how it could maybe be addressed, but I guess my, my first question um, would be when when did this issue of, of second homes first kind of come onto your radar? And can you explain why mm. exactly the idea of lots of people owning second homes in rural areas is a problem in your in your mm. view? Well, I think it's always been a problem. Um, I think it's over the last probably the last thirty or maybe even forty years there's been this kind of growing erosion of the affordable, available housing stock for people who live in the Lake District and, you know, the Yorkshire Dales and other similar places. And, and first of all, as a, as a liberal, uh, I hope as a reasonable person, I recognise people have got a right to buy a second home. Um, I certainly think that it's of huge value um, to uh, rural communities that we've got a, a strong visitor population, people come uh-huh. to have the holidays with us. And so in, in no way is this me being a miserable, you know, go back to where you came from, don't come and don't come and trouble us around <laughs> here. You can only enter this village if you're local. There's none of that in my sentiment <laughs> at all. Um, this is not me trying to turn everywhere into Royston Vasey. Um, <laughs> I, um, and and I, I ought to point out, I am I am Yorkshire's secret MP, by the way. <laughs> um, the boundary changes of the early 70s took a very large chunk of the Yorkshire Dales and the West Riding and stuck it into Cumbria. And pretty much all of that is in my patch. So Sedba, some people will say, I think the most populated place in the Yorkshire Dales, that's in... Yeah. Lonsdale, Den, Garsdale, and then these new bits of the Yorkshire Dales, Caston and Barbon, since it extended its, its boundaries. So it matters to me and it matters to other MPs in the region, I think, um, because of what it does to communities. So I think that what it means, excessive second home ownership, essentially does two things. It helps to push up house prices beyond the reach of um, what folks locally can afford. But more importantly, and more significantly, uh, more obviously, it robs communities of life. Uh, so if you've got mm-hmm. a village with maybe 10, 20% of the properties not lived in all year round, you can probably just about ab- absorb that. When you get into 50, 60% and beyond, then you run the risk of just killing the community altogether. Because if you've got you know, a village of 400 houses and 250 of them aren't lived in, you can kiss goodbye to your school and to your post office probably and to your bus route and maybe a pub in your church as well because there just isn't a a permanent population to sustain those services. So it means that the beautiful places people come on holiday end up becoming ghost towns. Now, on top of that, I think you've also got the the other issue, which is of holiday lets. And then again, these are also properties that are not lived in by a permanent population. They, I think, more than second homes, which I would count as someone's bolt hole. Your home might be Manchester or London or wherever. 
but you're lucky enough, wealthy enough to have a second or third or fourth place in the Dales or the Lakes, and you visit it, I don't know, half a dozen times a year. With holiday lets in the Lakes or the Dales, you might find that it's let for 40, 45 weeks a year. It's still, nevertheless, if there's too many of them, a property that's not available to local people. And if you've got a situation as we have in our uh, patch where the average house price is 11 times the average uh, household income, you can see that you essentially see a situation where there's just nowhere for local people to be able to live. And so it's not just the second homes that push people out. It's the inavailability, unaffordability of other properties. And too many holy lets achieves this as well. So where's the staff come from? You know, um, mm-hmm. to run the 60,000 people in Cumbria work in hospitality and tourism. They've got to live somewhere. And one of the reasons why there is a massive staffing crisis in um, in the tourism industry at the moment, particularly in the lakes and in the dales, is because local people can't afford to live there anymore. And if they can't afford to live there anymore, where's your workforce? So one thing with that is you said that there's a certain level that's okay and then it becomes excessive. So what for you is the tipping point and is there a way – of kind of keeping it below that level. So I think it, it, it's it's hard to put an exact figure on mm. it. A, a small village will suffer. So, you know, a, a big town of 10,000 houses by our standards um, could probably cope with 25, 30% second home oh. and still be viable. Um, whereas, you know, a, a place of 500 houses with that number of second homes would would struggle. So I think it is, it's, it's not just proportionate. But you know when it's happened, you know. Um, so I think about Elterwater and Chapel Style in the Langdales. They're both at 80 85% second homes. Mm. And and so, you know, Chapel Style has some social rented housing, so it's still got a school. But Elterwater, post office gone, the community pretty much doesn't exist um, full-time apart from a handful of, of, of remnants. And that, and that is incredibly sad. I remember getting a call just a few months ago from an older gentleman in a settlement not too far from Hawkshead. And he rang us up for some COVID advice. And we had a nice conversation, gave him uh, that advice. Um, and before he rang off, he said, I wouldn't have bothered ringing you really. I could have just gone and spoken to my neighbours normally, but I haven't got any anymore. And he wow. lived in a clutch of houses, a small hamlet, 16 or 17 houses, and he literally doesn't have a neighbour anymore. He's widowed. And and you had that real sense of kind of loneliness and isolation. Mm. And so it's not just the communities that are left behind collectively that are kind of uh, impoverished by excessive second home ownership. It's the individuals who were very often mm. are older, um, lonely, isolated. It's pretty sad. Um, and I, I don't want to go on holiday. I mean, you know, if I go to the Dales or or up to the Highlands to places where I don't live, um, and to and to visit those uh, those places, I don't want to go to a dead village. I want to believe that the place I'm going to, I'm adding value, not filling a gap that's been left by people who've been effectively cleared out of uh, that environment. And one thing I was really struck by in the debate too. Because there is a slight grey area, isn't there, between second homes and holiday lets. Mm. But one thing I was really struck by was when I think you said you were aware of hundreds of cases where private landlords mm. moved tenants out and then put the property on Airbnb. Yeah. Um, and I think when you were talking about the hundreds of cases, I think I'm right in saying you were talking about your constituency. Yeah. Um, so how widespread is this issue across the country or is it very difficult to kind of 
put your finger on it because of a lack of available figures? Well, it depends. Well, obviously, the figures are hard to get hold of. I mean, I, what I'll say here is we talked earlier about the, you know, when I became aware of the problem. It's been a problem long since, long before I became the MP, um, which is what, 16, 17 years ago now. Um, so it's been a lot of problem for a long time. But COVID has exacerbated the problem uh-huh. massively. Um, 80% of all the house sales um, in the lakes since during the pandemic have been to second homeowners. Wow. Um, and we've also, so then we come to stats, um, we've seen a 32% rise in the number of holiday lets um, in my district alone. Now, you've got to remember that this is a district with an awful lot of holiday lets to start off with. So 32% is a big number. But I can think of other places. So North Devon, for instance, um, reported a 70% drop in the number of private rented um, uh, properties. Wow. So, And that tells you, those two figures together, what's actually happened. So I think there's been a steady erosion of available affordable housing for local people and local workers um, over the last you know few decades. But erosion... Um, uh, and I did a lot of my geography field study as an O-level student, because that's how old I am, um, in the Orchardales. Um, we know erosion takes place over millennia. However, one day uh, a storm might happen and a whole cliff might fall into a sea or a whole kind of hillside might collapse into the valley. Um, and that's kind of what's happened in the last two years. So there's been enormous collapse of, um, in particular, private rented properties into the holiday let in particular, Airbnb sector. The government quite wisely, rightly, compassionately um, banned evictions for 12 months, but that ban ended about 10 months ago. And since uh-huh. then, the floodgates have opened. Um, and I say hundreds of people in my constituency, it's definitely happened in other similar places like Cornwall and Devon, uh, North Yorkshire and other places as well, the Highlands, where you have seen people just cleared out of their communities because the landlord can make a killing on Airbnb. So, you know, the example, I remember talking to um, a chap in but not many months ago um, who, you know, lived there, worked there 15 years. He's a local tradesman, very valued. He's the only person who does the thing that he does in that village, I'll not say any more, uh, for fear of identifying him. Um, mm. But, you know, he was paying, what, £600, a month for his uh, one-bedroom flat above a shop in the town. Um, he was cleared out. And within days of his eviction, um, he saw that that property was on Airbnb for £1,000 a week. And so that is uh, definitely happening. And so what you've got is a staffing crisis in the Dales and in the Lakes tourism and other parts of the economy as well. Because on the one hand, you've got the new visa rules, which means you can't get anybody from outside very easily. And on the other hand, you've just made it so much harder for anybody local to live locally. And Mm. therefore, where's your workforce? And so how much of this is being driven specifically by the rise in popularity of Airbnb? Because it does make it a lot easier for for second homeowners or those with holiday lets or people with tenants who think, oh, I actually fancy making a bit more money hmm. to, to do it in a way that people would maybe shy away from setting up their own bed and breakfast or something like that. How much of this recent activity is driven by airbnb and have you had any conversations with the company about these issues yes i have come back to that in a second um it's i think airbnb um provides an easy route for people to do um uh something which is damaging to the community 
but it's not the only route. Lots of these whole elect have gone through you know, a more traditional route. Mm-hmm. And of course, Airbnb is used as a platform for traditional holiday lets. And it's really important to stress that holiday lets are a really important part of the tourism economy. But I'll tell you, speaking to you know, hospitality chiefs in Cumbria, um, they're absolutely with me on my call for a limit because they know that whilst you want lots of holiday lets, there comes a point where you get beyond saturation. And if those holiday lets are basically instead of accommodation for local people, then the demand they might get from more people coming on holiday is meaningless Mm -hmm. if there's no staff to run the tourism economy. I mean, we had an absolutely fantastic summer last summer, in particular particular in the lakes, but also in the dales, with a wash with visitors, fantastic, great to see, and lots of irritated people because they couldn't get a bite to eat. Um, mm. because the cafes and restaurants could only operate at half time because um, or at half capacity because they just didn't have the staff. So there is a balance there. Um, but yes, I have spoken to Airbnb and their answers were a bit, you know, mealy-mouthed. What, what, I mean, what I wanted to, them to do um, is to commit to saying they would not put any property on their platform that had been made available via the landlord clearing out their tenant through a Section 21 Uh eviction. Um, Basic ethics. And they said they'd think about it. They're still thinking about it. Um, The one outcome that I think, I mean, we had the debate in Parliament the other week. Um, Lots of interesting, very powerful testimonies from MPs of all parties, uh, including the governing party, um, uh, during that debate. And the one disappointment was, sadly, the minister's response. (laughs) So I put out seven requests, seven steps Uh to say rural Britain, and he sort of agreed to have a think about one of them (laughs) and (laughs) and to not do anything about the other six. Uh, We're not giving up, of course, but the, the one he said he'd look at is investigating whether there should be a register of holiday lets, and that might be where you might regulate Airbnb because it is easy. You don't need to have a fire safety certificate or any of the other things that somebody has a holiday let would do. You're not technically a business, um, and that income um, is just yours to keep, and you're not you're not taxed. And that is um, that's wrong um, for lots of different reasons. But no, I think Airbnb need to act ethically. I don't think that the platform is innately immoral, <laughs> um, but I think it has nevertheless created uh, an opportunity for people to be their worst selves with the properties that they're lucky to have. I mean, playing devil's advocate, isn't there an argument that if if you've worked hard enough or been fortunate enough to own a second property um, and there's an entirely legal um, route to making more money um, via Airbnb and there's a demand for that service, which there clearly is, couldn't some people say, well, what's what's wrong with it? I know you've kind of set mm. out the reasons why on a wider scale there's a community issue. Um, I guess I haven't really asked you a question here, but, <laughs> but I, yeah. I guess my, my question would be, what would you say to those landlords who are, who are mulling this course of action, seeing, you know, friends and associates who've, who've taken this step and are now making twice what they were making as a as a private landlord, what would you say to them about whether or not they should go ahead? Yeah, I don't want to overly demonise the people who do this. It's the system that's letting them do it. The government can see the system and they're doing nothing to address it. And, of course, to a large degree, you're absolutely right. You know, in a free country, people should be able to make these sorts of decisions and choices. But this is where being a, this is where being a liberal is different to being a libertarian. <laughs> um, <laughs> a libertarian says, do what you like. You know, how, how dare this, you know, this sort of 
the MP tell me how I can uh, live my life and do what I want with my property and all the rest of it. A liberal says you've got the right to do what you want until your right bumps up against somebody else's, at which point you've got to make a judgment um, and actually think about it. And it seems to me a no-brainer that one person's right to have a second home um, does not trump somebody else's right to have a first and and that's where we are. We've got to we've got to look at how you don't ban second homes, don't ban holiday lets, but manage the numbers uh, because it would appear. I don't believe that free markets come about by unregulated by no regulation. Um, Laissez faire, stepping back and just letting the market do what it wants, is the opposite of the free market because what you're actually doing is putting the hands power in the hands of a very few people. A genuinely a game of football without a referee isn't free. It's a mess. You need a decent referee or else it's not a free contest. And the same applies to markets, all markets, but particularly one that's as broken as housing markets in rural communities. And that's why a whole range of things can be done. So the seven steps that I outline, I'll not go through them all, but two critical ones. Um, one is that you give um, local communities the power to limit the number of second homes and hold elects oh. in those communities. And you do that by... Um, a really simple mechanism, and that is to make second homes and holiday lets something that they currently aren't, and that is a separate category of planning use. Uh-huh. If, if I want to turn my house into a chippy, I w- I'll have to apply for planning permission to turn my uh, residential dwelling into a business fast food takeaway. You know, different change of use. I'd have to apply, and the council would probably say no. Um, but if I wanted to sell my house to a person who wouldn't live in it, or turn it into a second a second home for myself, or to turn it into a holiday let, I could just do it. And the point mm. is, we should be saying that councils and national parks, who obviously also ask as actors planning authorities, should have the power to decide whether to give a yes or a no to that. And if you're in a place like Coniston uh, or Sedba, um, then you'd probably you'd decide what is a tolerable number or percentage, and anything above that, you'd say no. Um, and that would give you the ability to cap the number of second homes and holiday lets to a sustainable level. And there is a sustainable level. It's not, and that level is definitely not zero. You know, we're going to say yes to second homes and to holiday lets, but not to a level that kills the community. Yeah. And there has been um, a recent announcement by the government with some limited action on this by Michael Gove um, that owners of second tax, uh, owners of second homes rather, will have to pay council tax. Um, if they are genuine holiday lets from April 2023. That that was an interesting issue because some of these, Mm. um, without going too much into the weeds of the situation, you can declare your home as a holiday let and effectively not really do too much about it. And some of these people were were claiming COVID grants for thousands and thousands of pounds, weren't they, at the start of the pandemic. Do you think that action, I mean, firstly, do you welcome that action? Uh, my second question was going to be, does that go far enough? But I think you've probably demonstrated it doesn't yeah. go far enough. No. But do, do you welcome kind of the, the step that's been taken? Chris, I should say that I welcomed that action when it was actually announced in March last year. Oh, right. Uh, okay. So it was a re-announcement. That's not your fault. This is the I fall, I've fallen for the government spin, have I? You have, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was announced last March and it was announced to be introduced in April this year. So right. actually, it's a re-announcement and a delay. Oh, and it's really? not just that, because the, the 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 consultation took place over two years. It ended in January 2019. They took until March last year to announce the outcome. I don't know why they waited two and a bit years to announce the outcome of a consultation that closed 
two and a bit years earlier. And then they wait another 10 months to announce, re-announce, delaying it. But the thing itself is, you know, yes, it's a good thing because at the moment um, you've got people basically cheating. <laughs> they have a second home mm-hmm. um, and a second home you have to pay council tax on, brackets, thanks to the Lib Dems in coalition because you used to get <laughs> you used to get a subsidy for having on your council tax having a second home, but not anymore. You used to get a subsidy? You used to get subsidy. Wow. You used to get 50% off and then you used to get 10% off and now at least you have to pay the full amount of council tax on your second home. But if you are um, not a second homeowner, but you own a hold it let, in inverted commas, brackets, you stick it on some obscure website um, and your mother-in-law stays there once, you can pretend it's a holiday let. Mm. And then, of course, you've only got the one of these and therefore it's a small business so you don't pay any council tax and you also get business rates exemption so you pay nothing at all. And um, they were getting and, like thousands, weren't they, in the, in well, the COVID so on, Absolutely. Concert. So no, no, no. You're quite right. And to add insult to injury, when COVID came along, they could then claim a, a ten grand grant um, for being a small business that had been terribly hurt by the pandemic. Mm. Now, to be fair, a very small minority of them actually were bad enough and wicked enough, I would say, um, to go and take advantage of that. But some certainly did. But it, yes, I mean, so obviously we wel- we welcome the government closing a loophole, um, however long it's taking them to blooming well do it. Nevertheless. It's absolutely, um, you know, not even the tip of the iceberg. It's a, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the bigger issues. So, you know, so the cha- changing planning law, so we can actually have some power over this. But also, let's be honest, if you can afford, you know, an extra house worth perhaps 400 grand, if you're lucky, might be a lot more than that probably, um, in, in Cumbria or North Yorkshire, then, um, then you can afford more than just the council tax. And one thing which we would love to do, and I propose, is to do something the Welsh Government have now enabled, and that's give councils and uh, the ability to do more than just charge council tax at 100% rate, but to charge it at 200%. Um, a, as a, as a disincentive, but B, as a kind of way of redistributing some wealth. So, you know, if you're in Coniston and over half of the properties are not lived in, and therefore the primary and secondary school have fewer kids at it at them than they should have and therefore their future is often at risk because of a lack of income you can for instance take some of the money that you would get by a council tax premium on second homeowners to invest in those schools to ensure their sustainability and therefore the community sustainability you can also use some of that money to pump prime the creation of more affordable housing for local people too and so i guess i guess my final question on this issue of the second homes is and Probably particularly thinking back to that example of you gave of, of the man on his own with no neighbours, what for you, you know, in five, ten years would be success on this issue? Well, I think it would be the um, ending of the slide into uh, non-permanent residence um, of our properties. It would also mean um, so the ability for, for communities to not be powerless and to be able to make their own look and define their own destiny. And not, you know, we definitely don't want to be clearing out tourists or all second homeowners, but we want to be in a position where we can limit the numbers so that the community is sustainable. I also want to make sure that the developments that are built in the lakes and the dales are 100% affordable. You know, you can always build uh, half a million pounds, you know, um, detached property in any of these beautiful places and sell it like that within a second. But the problem is, 
we are building for demand and not for need. And we need to make sure that we restrict through planning law um, very carefully and very tightly what people are allowed to build in our rural communities so that we're building to make sure those rural communities still exist in a generation's time. Otherwise, we will just simply be seeing what I refer to as a Lakeland clearances, that um, the the landlords, those who own the land, are choosing to move out the permanent full-time residents because they can make more money out of something else yeah it's it's a big challenge i mean it, one one thing that I, I wanted to ask you about more generally actually was mm. you've been an mp since 2005 obviously party leader for a period of time and um, what what still motivates you in politics what what drives you obviously second homes partly yeah. <laughs> but what what is kind of your guiding force in politics it's it's service i mean i think it over the i mean i've always obviously for lots of reasons um found politics intriguing and engaging but as the years have and i've been passionate about the things i believe in but as the years gone by i absolutely am of the view that the most important calling in politics is to serve people um uh you know the idea that we can transform society and leave our mark and all the rest of it i think sometimes is is vain uh, in both senses of the word, <laughs> um, in vain and vain. Um, but I, but I think the need to serve people to try and make sure that people who would otherwise be voiceless have a voice get one. Um, I think it's over the years. I have, I'm a, I've learned to see that lots of people in politics are motivated by good things. I've also, I'm afraid, learned to see in politics lots of people are motivated by really shallow um, and selfish things as well. And so I become increasingly intolerant of some of the people who um, hold power at the highest level. And and I try to be, um, what shall I say, uh, just, you know, my own harshest critic in that respect as well. But fundamentally, so to try to make sure you hold people to account, um, uh, but fundamentally, the most important thing MPs uh, are there to do is to serve the people who put them there. That doesn't mean always doing the things that they want you to do, because sometimes I might just mm-hmm. disagree, in which case I'll take my chances at the ballot box the next election. But you're there to serve people and to be their voice and to go out of your way. And, and so in a community like mine, when I see it in some aspects, you know, under existential threat, my job is to doggedly fight for those things that I think will, will save those communities. And you talk there about being your own harshest critic. And one thing I was just wondering about actually was um, when you stepped down as party leader in 2017, you gave the reason that you felt that the role was incompatible with your Christian faith. Obviously, I presume that was a, a challenging decision to come to. How I'm just really interested to how do you reflect mm. now on that period and that decision kind of, well, five years now down the line as time races yeah, on? Yeah, it does. Well, I think, so first of all, I, I think it's, it would be wrong to say that Christians can't be in leading positions. I think Christians who are wiser than me <laughs> um, can absolutely be in leading positions. I think I got myself into a situation where I thought, I'm either going to spend the next several years batting away uh, questions about my faith um, and therefore distracting from my message of being the leader of the party, um, or I'm going to have to basically car crash my faith and just pretend it doesn't mm-hmm. matter um, so that I can get permission to talk about the things that you know my job as party leader to talk about so i made that decision i either car crash my faith or be a terrible leader and i thought let's 
let's not do either of those things. <laughs> um, and so I think it was a wise decision for me to make in those circumstances. But having said that, I don't, I mean, I have no regrets. Life is what it is. And, um, and I feel very blessed to be where I am at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm glad I was leader and I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> um, I say, do you feel happier now that you're kind of, uh, and more at liberty in some ways to... Well, I think there is something, one danger and you can become, this is where you can become a bit self-righteous as well, and you mustn't be, that there's something gloriously liberating to be post-ambitious. Um, <laughs> so I don't have any, you know, I, I, I love being a member of parliament. I've, you know, I'd love to carry on doing that um, and serving my communities in Cumbria. Um, but I've no desire to hold any other position. I mean, I'm happy to do mm-hmm. the jobs that Ed Davey asks me to do in terms of shadowing certain briefs, but it wouldn't break my heart if he took them off me. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm doing it out of duty and, and cause I enjoy it as well, particularly speaking on rural areas and rural affairs and farming, which is the thing I'm passionate about. Um, but, uh, so, but yes, that means I, I can say what I think. <laughs> and that's, yeah. uh, but I try to do it in a way which isn't vain. And I try to do it in a way which doesn't cause embarrassment to colleagues and to try and be a team player in the process. But, um, yeah, there is something, I mean, lots, lots of people have been leaders, you know, the minute they step down, they look bereft. They look like they're not enjoying themselves and they're out of parliament as soon as they can get out. Yeah. Um, and I've, I'm not that, um, you know, I, it's a, it's a, it was a great honor and a duty, um, to serve as a party leader, my party leader, a party I've been a member of since I was 16 and an enormous privilege, but it's a massive joy to serve as a member of parliament for my community. And, it, and it, um, I'm motivated to, keep doing it as a result i was just about to ask you that it sounds like you're still very keen to to carry on and not eyeing the exit door or anything like that no well i, I mean who knows what might come around the corner i never say never say never but i I'm, i enjoy what i do i don't feel like i run out of steam and i also think i mean in a community like mine so obviously cumbria has got six mps five tories and me if you look at rural england especially um it genuinely properly rural constituencies um, I think it's just me and a bunch of Tories. I can't think of any of them. I mean, there are mm. Labour MPs with rural bits to their constituencies, but the massive majority will be uh, people who live in urban areas. Um, so I, I kind of think I'm probably the only rural opposition voice in England. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'm now not <laughs> the only one, but North Shropshire is the, other, is the exception. Helen <laughs> Morgan now joining me. But um, So someone will point out that I'm wrong on something and Kevin Jones in North Durham might say well that's different but actually you still got big towns there so i think that but the number of opposition voices Mm. um uh offering a critique to this government on rural areas and rural issues um they're very very few and far between um and so i think you know people like me need to stick at it otherwise the government will go um unchallenged and the worst governments the ones that are most poorly opposed um and just on that fight well just to bring back to something you said earlier, obviously, is you say you're Yorkshire's secret MP, thanks to the border <laughs> changes and everything like that. Do you see a route back to Yorkshire having some official Lib Dem MPs yeah. in the next election, yeah. as in well the as current, the secret one? The secret one over the um, the other side. Um, yes, I definitely do. I mean, I think that, you know, our strength in, uh, in Labour-facing areas, in places like Sheffield, Sheffield Hallam, but also obviously in Harrogate and other areas of North Yorkshire, um, where we are Tory facing, I think there is uh, yet a real a real opportunity. I, my my sense is that the two by election gains of twenty twenty one, the one we've just had in North Shropshire, uh, in a Leave voting 
uh, very rural um, constituency um, with, you know, mixed incomes, mixed affluence, mm-hmm. some very poor areas where some well-to-do ones. And then the one we had in, you know, the lovely commuter belt in Cheshire and Amersham uh, back in uh, the summer, they are results that tell you that the uh, Liberal Democrats have definitely recovered, um, mm-hmm. that in much of the United Kingdom, we are the main opponents to the Conservatives. And that actually includes some, some seats where we're third, believe it or not. By and mm-hmm. large, you know, you should look at the last general election result to give you a clue as to who you should vote for to beat the Conservatives. But North Shropshire, we came from third. And it's a reminder in seats like that, in those rural communities, there is a ceiling on the Labour vote, which is smaller and lower than the ceiling on the Liberal Democrat vote. Um, and rural communities will turn to us uh, gladly and enthusiastically in a way that they wouldn't to Labour. And that's not to knock Labour. It's about um, being honest about what's the best route to seeking to remove a Conservative government. And I think we are, there's no doubt in my mind, that any and every plausible pathway to Boris Johnson losing the next general election if he remains leader um, it involves a very significant Liberal Democrat revival and recovery, and that includes gaining seats in, in Yorkshire. OK, well, look, thank you so, so much for your time, Tim. Really appreciate it. Absolutely fascinating to talk to you. And um, we'll see where things go, particularly on the second homes issue. It'll be fascinating to see how that plays out in um, in the next few weeks, months and, and years ahead. It's all about individuals. I mean, I, I, I thought the response from Christopher Pinch, who was the minister, to the debate the other week was really poor and weak, right? Um, not trying to be mean about him, but it was. Um, however, Michael Gove is the minister, the secretary of state for that department. And um, whatever you think about Michael Gove, he's a person who thinks outside the box and he's quite effective. He's quite mm. effective. Um, so my hope is that I can turn his head on this <laughs> um, and that he will see this is an issue that... It's important for the Conservative Party to get right, otherwise communities they represent will grow in their fury at the Tories and do what they did to the Tories in North Shropshire. I was quite struck, actually. It just Sorry, I know we've, we've got over time, but um, I was quite struck by Kevin Hollingrake, the Conservative MP yeah. of Thurston Moulton yeah. during the debate, which is obviously North Yorkshire, yeah. talking about the idea of a wealth tax, which is not something you typically no. associate with the Tories, but he was an, it's accepting... Yeah, I think in his words that it's a broken market at the moment. Yeah, and I think there are lots of Conservatives in, in, in North Yorkshire and the West Country and other places as well who do get it. At the moment, they're not being listened to by their leadership, but let's hope things change and I'll do my best to make sure that they do. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks, Happy Chris. To speak to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think we should be digging into, please get in touch with me um, via email, chris.burn at jpimedia.co.uk. Speak next week.